Oh, I am so happy to be here with you again on this beautiful, beautiful Saturday. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So here on Let's Grab Coffee, obviously I love coffee, but y'all should also know that I love food. And food is such a big part of how we connect with people, places, community. So I mean, thinking about the role of a shared meal or how food marks a celebration or you know comfort food uh, for trying times. Now, of course, in this current global health pandemic, you know, our you know, food sharing practices have been drastically altered. Yet I remain curious to how our relationships and other aspects of our social life shape our experiences with food and can also be connected to health outcomes. So joining me today is an expert on these topics, Dr. Letitia Brown. Dr. Brown is an assistant professor of sociology at Virginia Tech. She is an affiliate of the Africana Studies and Women's and Gender Studies programs, as well as the Alliance for Social, Political, Ethical, and Cultural Thought. Dr. Brown is also a member of the steering committee for the development of the Food Studies program at Virginia Tech, and she's developing a new course on race and food. Welcome, Dr. Letitia Brown. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am so excited to have you on the show. I cannot wait to dive into all of your research <laughs> around food. But first, I just have to ask you, okay, are you the type of person who you eat to live or are you the live to eat? <laughs> Ooh, so I am trying to be a person in the middle because okay. I know the pros and cons of both, but I cannot deny that I love food. Okay. And I love living. So it's like, you gotta be, you gotta be kind of like balanced in that. <laughs> uh, yes, balance, balance is so important. And I'm glad you said that because I'm definitely a person who I live to eat. I live for good food. I, you know, everything is a celebration that should be celebrated with food. Like <laughs> that is such a big part of, you know, how I grew up. So even thinking a little bit about those relationships yes. and how, you know, my orientation is like, there must be food and there must be a lot of it and we must eat it all. Um, but I loved your answer of like, you know, both the pros and cons to both kind of extremes. Yeah. And so you want that middle path. Um, I'm already feeling a little attacked by that answer. Oh no. <laughs> but that's right. You do know the pros and cons. And so we're going to get into that some more throughout this morning's conversation. Uh, but I also was curious to know, how did you even um, get into food research or find that as a topic of interest for you? Yeah. I mean, I've always kind of been curious about food and family, even before I had the language to articulate it. Um, my mom's family is from Angola, which is in Southwest Africa. And my dad's family are Black American. My dad was born and raised in Colorado with all of his siblings. His mother was from Muskogee, Oklahoma. And 
his dad from Kansas City, Missouri. So it's like I had these two very food heavy cultures growing up, but they were different types of food cultures. And so I just always was like intrigued by this. And then, you know, growing up, I did a lot of sports. And so for a time I had struggles with food, of course, is a thing that a lot of like adolescent girls go through, but that is less talked about among women of color in general, and especially black women, particularly when it comes to things like anorexia and bulimia. And so when I was an undergrad, I read this book by Stephanie Covington called Not All Black Girls Know How to Eat. Mm. And it was her memoir about her struggle with bulimia. And I related so hard to that book that I decided when I went to grad school, I was going to study eating disorders in Black women. And that's the only thing that I was going to care about. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, of course, that's not how grad school works. <laughs> um, you often end up taking classes and meeting faculty that kind of like shifts your interests. And so mine shifted to sports for a bit. But when it came time to do the dissertation, I felt like I could go back to my original interest in food. Primarily because I had taken a class in American studies called American food, which was incredible with the amazing Dr. Elizabeth Englehart. And in that class, we did oral histories of iconic Texas restaurants. Ooh. My partner and I had Matt's El Rancho in Austin, Texas, which is run by a family started by mother and father and now currently being run by the sisters and every time we would go there and listen to a part of their story they would feed us after <laughs> it's like you can see them making the tortillas in the back room kind of food and i was like oh this is class i'm here for this yes <laughs> let us eat for credit i am all about that life especially when it's free because Grad students are poor and it's Hello. very, very sad. <laughs> they deserve better. Just going to say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just really was excited by that class. And my chair, um, Dr. Deborah Umberson, does a lot of work on social relationships, mm. um, a lot of work on like bereavement and grief and health and. So just thinking about her interest and my interest, I kind of had this feeling that I could merge them into like a coherent project. Mm -hmm. Like it took me a while to kind of like nail it down and make sure that everyone could like understand what I was thinking inside of my head, mm -hmm. because that's what it is, is like translating your wants and desires into something that can be received by more than just you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, so I ended up doing my dissertation on food and social relationships among college-educated Black and white adults. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love, you know, first, I'm just so taken by this <laughs> class where you I all know. got to eat <laughs> eat what I imagine was really, really oh, good food. <laughs> so good. Yes, I'm like so jealous. Like that's the type of class that I needed in my life. Um, but I absolutely love this idea of thinking about, you know, 
family history and food history, right, as being created simultaneously and how it then impacts, you know, our own relationships with food. And then, of course, health and health outcomes, you know, of course, along with that. Um, So I know that one area that you've investigated in terms of relationships um, between food and these social contexts is particularly this role of religion or this Mm -hmm. role of faith. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place for us (laughs) to start. Um, I know you investigated other types of contexts, but let's start with um, food and faith and this idea of different food rituals. So that one caught me off guard not in like my social experiences because you know i grew up in in the church and i remember all of the food that we had especially when i would go home to colorado to our baptist church there there was always food and usually it was my family that was doing the cooking because they're the cooks and so i was like cool i get this food goes with religion like it's something that i knew implicitly but never really thought about kind of academically mm-hmm. until i was just doing my interviews and reading over the interviews that i had as an archive kind of to use for my work and one of the things that struck me was how often the black people in the sample talked about religion impacting their food. And I was like, well, yeah, this makes sense. Like I get it, but why wasn't this like on my initial radar, but it wasn't one of our original, it wasn't one of the original questions from the initial study that had been done. Mm -hmm. It was a question that I took up in my follow-up interviews to kind of like generate more data on what was already existing with the data that I had previously. And It just, it surprised me in the very kind of gendered contexts in which Black women and men talked about food and faith. It was very surprising, but intriguing. And I will qualify it to say that the majority of my interviews were done at places where there was food. So, (laughs) you know, coffee shops, diners, like there was, there was, there was food, there was food typically nearby. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you mentioned that there was different ways that black men Uh and black women that you talked to were talking about food in the context of kind of like religion or faith. What were some of those differences? Yeah. Um, For Black women, the conversation was often around fellowship and the idea of fellowship and food and having these spaces like Bible study book clubs for women in which they would bring food to share with one another to talk about other issues during the course of a meal, but how they would try to bring different foods every week in order to kind of deal with health issues that exist among black Mm -hmm. populations like a lot of my respondents were very cognizant about you know issues with black health but also really reflective on how a lot of those narratives are steeped in like racist sexist assumptions about Mm -hmm. black women in our bodies right and so that was one kind of like area that I uncovered and then for like black men in my sample it was more kind of like 
not entirely like these known communities, but kind of like the black community in general, and then like how they understood their masculinity as black men. And so um, several talked about the Daniel's fast where like Daniel in the Bible, you fast for 21 days, excluding this and that. And I just found it like interesting because until then I hadn't heard of it. Like, I mean, I knew who Daniel was. Like I went to Bible study. I was paying attention most of the time. And, but I was just like, oh, this is the thing that we're doing now. Mm -hmm. But I found it fascinating that none of the women in my sample talked about that fast. Wow. Nary a one. And I was like, hmm, okay. That is fascinating. And like, of course, depending on sample size, like things and like location, things are different, right? But I just found it really fascinating how Black women were more thinking about socializing and Black men were thinking about this like internal struggle with faith and food, which Mm -hmm. makes sense when you think about who has the most relationships. Like women tend to have more connections than men have. They tend to have more, you know, deep connections as opposed to like acquaintances. Mm -hmm. Like I know my five best friends and I know that each of my five best friends has other best friends other than me. I don't always like it, but I know it's true. (laughs) But I don't, you know, like, for my guy friends, like it's often not the same. Mm-hmm. And when they do have multiple best friends, they're usually not men. So I just like find that to be <laughs> really, really fascinating. But it's like, you know, it's how we're socialized. Mm-hmm. Women are supposed to be nurturing and caring and relying on one another, talking about our feelings, <laughs> which I'm just like, so why is that a bad thing? Like, why do we talk about it? Like, it's, negative Mm -hmm. I can think of several reasons but that's not why we're here today (laughs) yes well you know as you were talking I was thinking about kind of just expanding on what you were saying like because women we're socialized to be um, more sociable and to have these deeper quote-unquote connections and have normalized us talking about our feelings or these shared experiences we're just listening to your finding around men and how they were using the Daniel fast as a way to kind of do a little bit of introspection, um, Mm -hmm. not just maybe about faith, but other aspects of their life in ways that women were using or relying upon these norms of communicating and having the group setting to talk about, you know, these things. And so maybe they didn't need a Daniel's fast, right, to, to work through some of these you know, questions or issues, um, whereas the men who are often seen as like, you know, be independent, don't talk about your feelings, had to use this kind of gateway into faith to work through a variety of different kind of things that maybe they were thinking about or dealing with. And that makes so much sense, especially when you think about fasting as this means of like control. Mm-hmm. and being in control of yourself and your body and what you put into it in a world in which black men are so often portrayed as being out of control monsters like Rodney King was a cyborg and that's why it took several people to tackle him George Floyd was this unimaginable beast and that's why we had to pin him down with on his neck like 
So in this kind of like world in which black men are seen as being out of control, I think having something to engage with that was kind of like proving their control over themselves was like really important Mm -hmm. as a part of adopting a black masculine identity that exists outside of hegemonic realities that they're not, you know, given access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's so much there. I mean, when we think about food, like, wow, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you're not necessarily probably the average listener today is not thinking about food and our connections to food or other folks' connections to food and use yeah. of food, you know, as a way to potentially combat these negative racial stereotypes or, you know, to combat mm-hmm. even, you know, hegemonic masculinity, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, this is just, I think it's so important, right, to expand the ways that we're thinking about food. Um, And this is just one example. Now, I know we talked about kind of this one aspect of how Black men and Black women in particular were were using food and faith um, in some of these ways to maybe combat or even express some sort of, you know, in the case of women, like solidarity, socializing. But what about actual impacts on health, right? Were there impacts on health that you saw that were happening um, as well? I definitely saw through the interviews some discussion about health and weight loss and kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, relying on prayer, relying on the health clinics that were put on by congregations and following those types of stipulations. But I do think that there is a good amount of literature on the connection between health and faith, though typically what's discussed is smoking and alcohol consumption, you know, and how those tend to decrease the more you're invested in religion and ideals of that nature, which again, makes sense. But there wasn't too, too much that I felt among my Black participants, but I also didn't ask questions about like cholesterol and diabetes. And if I had, who knows what I would have found, but I do, I do think that there is a intimate relationship between food and faith, especially among African-Americans who for several generations, like the black church was the one institution in which they had, we, we had the freedom to like live our lives and of course those would be the spaces in which we're breaking bread together and but there's also like this misconception that everything that's served is you know stereotypically bad for you because black people don't know how to eat is like this common narrative and I'm just like that doesn't make any sense if during you know plantation slavery it was the enslaved women who were doing the most of the cooking for the you know white mistresses and masters I'm pretty sure they knew what it was they were cooking and often they had the enslaved people had their own like vegetable gardens in order to supplement the fact that they weren't given food and so like we want to have this erasure of like this legacy of black farmers or black vegans and it's just like yeah they're out there yes yes i think it's so important as you're mentioning you know to really challenge some of these prevailing narratives 
Because even mm-hmm. if you stop and think about it for a second, you would say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Exactly to your point of what you explained, even if we would just use the planta- plantation time mm-hmm. period, right? As an example, like if we just stop and think about it, it's like, wait a minute, some of these narratives that maybe we've accepted or that are just you know, popular cir- in circulation, like they don't quite make sense. <laughs> Not at all. But we just like hold so tightly to these like thoughts. And I'm just like, but why? Like, wouldn't it be nice to kind of like let go a little of these narratives? But I mean, we live in a social context in which like the journal JAMA wrote an article this year saying that no physician is racist. And I'm kind of like, seriously? Like, I understand your point that you were trying to get at, like, systemic racism, but, like, let me tell you, individual doctors are racist, period, full stop. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Even just anecdotally, like, we all know. So, kind of in 2021, publishing a piece with that as being, like, the title frame, I'm just kind of like, what are we doing, guys? Like, what's really happening? (laughs) absolutely and for listeners who may not be familiar JAMA is the journal of the American Medical Association so again just speaking to these narratives right and where they're published and how they then circulate throughout society and can be very dangerous right when we're thinking about here in this case you know medical outcomes people's lives Uh, but also as we're thinking about food um, and I've seen more attention being given within the past several years to Black farmers and to um, Black vegans as well. So I think on one hand, we are seeing um, some of these stories getting more widely circulated, right? Because of course, the realities have been there forever. It's just what are we seeing in kind of this more mainstream popular press or that we can have more access to so we can, you know, challenge the narratives that maybe we We've even been holding on to ourselves. Right. Because we've definitely, as people, we internalize the things that are seen as concrete within our society. Like for so for so long, I really believed that the BMI was the be-all end-all matrix, right? Because that's what we're supposed to believe, right? But we like but it's like well documented that the BMI doesn't account for things like muscle mass or just like these basic rudimentary things. And so we buy into these like assumptions that like, well, it it makes sense that I'm overweight, even though, you know, but according to the BMI, I am obese, which is great and ridiculous because, but then also like these narratives around being overweight and obesity as being problematic in and of themselves without reflection on the social context, which doesn't make sense. And then these narratives, it's like, well, it's because black women won't work out because of their hair. And I'm like, okay, that seems bogus. Or, you know, black people only eat x y and z and i'm like yeah that also seems bogus like you know that there's no such thing as a monolithic black person right (laughs) or do we not know that because i know that Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure you know that like (laughs) just like you know because though there are 
overlaps and crisscrossing like people what they're eating in Barbados and the Caribbean is not necessarily exactly what they're eating in Luanda Angola like it's just like things are different like there are commonalities and there are similarities and also those foods are typically really kind of good for you mm-hmm. absolutely but absolutely we don't want to talk about that because we enjoy being able to stigmatize women especially in black women about ideas around fatness mm-hmm. and the medicalization of our bodies mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about some of these different social contexts that are impacting our relationship with food. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Letitia Brown and we're talking all about food, one of my favorite topics. I'm so excited to have a food expert here or food research expert, I should say here. And we have been talking about the different social contexts that impact um, our experiences with food. And so before the break, we were talking about faith or religion, um, but even talking about uh, mainstream narratives around food and our bodies. And so I wanted to talk about another social context, um, which is or are our romantic relationships. (laughs) Uh, And so I'm really curious to what you found in your research around romantic relationships and how they're impacting our experiences of food. That was one of my most favorite chapters to kind of like write and investigate because it makes sense that the relationships that are at the center of our lives often, you know, impact our day-to-day activities, including what, why, and how we eat things, you know, like it makes, it makes complete and total sense. Um, But there, there are also like a lot of variations and kind of like how this takes place Mm -hmm. and so even though um a lot of the celebrity chefs for instance that we see on tv are white men when it comes to like interpersonal relationships black men are more likely to like do household things including cooking within their relationships so i'm just like why aren't there more black iron chefs? And it's like, of course I know why, but <laughs> that's another it's another conversation. But what I really found in my work around food and relationships was how it shaped processes of overeating, ideas around healthy eating and food choices. And kind of how these like play a role in shaping a person's overall health when they're in a particular relationship, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is just differently. It was just very different for me to kind of like dig into and how like my findings suggested that like food choices, healthy eating and overeating were shaped by 
the meanings that people attach to food mm. within the context of their relationship. So did they view eating as an obligation or as an act of given slash received care really shaped how and what people ate, mm. which I just found to be super duper interesting. <laughs> um, you know, so for a lot of the men, there would be these conversations like, yeah, I got married. The food was great, great, great food, <laughs> you know, or like when I was living alone, I learned that there's only so much you can do with Velveeta. And I'm like, that's true. <laughs> and I am shocked and slightly disturbed by the amount of things you were able to do with Velveeta because it's not an actual cheese, but hey live your life <laughs> oh my goodness you know that <laughs> that's so funny because I'm just reflecting back on um, men that I've dated and how they said you know like the ways that they would eat as a single man were mm -hmm. just vastly different than the ways that we ate together right so again right. thinking about you know maybe not quite Velveeta but <laughs> but still some maybe what we would call struggle meals of just kind of like throwing whatever together and not really being concerned concerned about really anything but just like I ate so like right I checked that That's box <laughs> like I continued to survive today I ate something versus like being in a relationship and now it's like oh well I should probably or we should probably eat like actual meals that maybe you know mm -hmm. have a vegetable <laughs> and a protein or you know more variety of food and more health foods um so just thinking about you know of course yeah. even in my own personal experience like yeah that's so true <laughs> it is and it's just like fascinating like there were a good amount of men who learned to cook when they got into romantic relationships because they realized that like what they were doing their partner probably wasn't really going to be into and so I should clarify to say that the adults that I studied were all heterosexual and I completely understand that there would be different you know conceptualizations based on gender and sexuality and socioeconomic status which is why I kind of like focused on college educated adults to kind of mitigate some of the economic impact, even though we know that Black people with bachelor's degrees do not earn the same as a white person with the same degree in the same field. But it was just, it was interesting for me. I also was struck by like the men who were already chefs to begin with, because my dad is a chef. And so and his dad was like the best cook in our family. So, and my uncle on my mom's side is a great cook. So in my mind, men are the people that cook. Yes. <laughs> like I can cook, like my aunts and everybody, they, they can, but like, do we have to? <laughs> no. And so I just, I just found it, you know, really intriguing and, but then there are also a lot of these kind of narratives that are so expected like we expect that by being in a relationship with a woman like she might be more nurturing because that's our nature and so I had men who would say things like 
my partner, she watches the things that she eats and she pushes for healthier eating. And it doesn't bother me as long as the food tastes good and was easy enough to cook. <laughs> like, you know, being within the relationship mattered as opposed to like being on the verge of a breakup or how you're dealing and coping with food post-divorce look different for women and men. And oh, it was just, it was a lot of, it was a really good project. Like I had a really, I had a good, I had amount of fun with this that I wasn't expecting because research is a lot. <laughs> research is a lot, but at least you had a topic where I yeah. mean, just listening to what you're sharing with us this morning, I mean, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so interesting. And I know that everyone listening can relate at some level. Um, and it reminded me of, I think it was maybe like an op-ed or, or, or some article that was talking about like a woman chef who kind of withheld her experience and cooking skill set from her partner for the reasons that you're mentioning where we have these expectations that um, within heterosexual relationship that the woman is going to just take on these roles even if she might not be the better cook in the relationship which i just find fascinating because i'm like you know what I would love a husband that cooks because it makes sense to me. Like, that's what my experience has told me is the thing. And like, I promise you that like on the occasions when I do cook, it's going to be sublime, but that day-to-day -day life, I'm not really about that. I'm not really sure how that works. Like, I mean, I am because I live by myself, but sometimes I think about my food choices as an assistant professor. And I'm like, I probably shouldn't talk about these in real life. <laughs> nobody needs to know <laughs> are you over there um using your Velveeta skill set <laughs> never never would I cook with Velveeta but I will say that I do have like staples mm -hmm. and I tend to like stick to those and sometimes I'll venture out but like I'm just so tired most of the time that I'm just like whatever's clever like I love to roast a whole chicken because that is meals, multiple meals. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yes, <sighs> yes. Now I'm wondering, because um, you mentioned this briefly, I'm thinking about the meanings that different people mm -hmm. have attached to food, right? And so you mentioned kind of food as an obligation or even the food as a way to give and receive care. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about these meanings that we attach to food and then how they are showing up in um, relationships. Yeah. So there's this kind of like logic that occurs within dating. Even if we're cognizant of it, sometimes we're still enacting like these social norms and expectations. So I had one of my male participants, he was 34 at the time, say that, well, when you're with when you're with someone, I believe that you eat more. I mean, for the guy. Oh. I feel that the guy spends more money. You eat more when you're in a relationship. When it's just me and I'm hungry, I can go to the kitchen and fix up some ramen noodles and be fine. But when you're in a relationship, it's an obligation. You'll want to go out, eat somewhere, or cook a big meal. 
and I just found those kind of like discussions kind very very illuminating and fascinating right because we think about these dynamics when we go out to eat and about who's supposed to eat what and are we eating within our boundaries like is this if this is my first date do I get the lobster even though that's messy or like the barbecue wings but like you're not supposed to be messy but if I just eat a salad, am I going to seem like that person who just eats salad? Because I definitely don't just eat salad. I eat more than salad. Like, don't get me wrong. I love me a salad, (laughs) but I also really like other things too. And so just kind of like thinking about how our expectations within the framework of the norms that we're so used to living, like another person said that like, when you're married, you eat at a certain time during the day and (laughs) you're so you're eating more because like you're expected to eat with your family or your partner and when it's just you you can do whatever you want and that was for me was very interesting but even among one of my um black women who was a participant she married into a family that loved to eat and her mother-in-law loved to cook and it was her first time really learning about cooking and food like even though her mother cooked well her mother-in-law's cooking was like amazing (laughs) and they always loved to eat and so they would eat everything Mm -hmm. and for her she was really just like oh my gosh there are four or five meats at this thanksgiving like what is this and everyone kind of like looked at her like oh you must eat like a bird because you're not eating a lot which is also like a really problematic analogy mm-hmm. because birds eat like 20 percent of their body weight and i'm like if we as people did that every day i don't think there would be people so <laughs> Like, I get what you're trying to say when you eat like a bird, but I really hope you're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because 20% of your body weight when you're a full-grown adult is a whole mess of food. Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Yes. No, I love this because it's like, yes, let's turn all of these kind of common sayings upside down and really think Mm -hmm. about, you know, Mm -hmm. what we're saying, but also the expectations around what we should eat or not eat or how much or when. Right. And what I noticed was that it was the women who were the most likely to accommodate what it was that their husbands felt was accurate so Mm. I'm gonna eat more because my family my husband's family eats more or my husband doesn't like chicken so I guess I'm just not gonna have chicken but when we get divorced you better believe I'm gonna be at Popeye's and I'm just like ooh, that's stressful but it like plays into this mythos of like what it means to be a quote unquote good wife. And so a good wife will help you make healthy decisions, will help you live longer, blah, blah, blah. Even though we do know that men in at least heterosexual relationships live longer than single men because they have someone to tell them when to go to the doctor since they don't really want to do that by themselves. Yes. Yes. (laughs) but it's just like okay so (laughs) it's it was a very I learned a lot from this project for sure like things that I never really thought about Mm -hmm. or things that I needed to 
examine and reflect upon more deeply. And I definitely am excited about the work that I've had come out from my dissertation so far and the things that I'm working on from the work in my dissertation, like really excited for what's happening with that. Yes. I'm wondering too, if in the course of your research, and I don't know if you did or how many, or if you did follow-up interviews with folks, but if they talked about at any point having explicit conversations around food, um, in this case with their partners um, and like negotiating how they might approach what they eat or how often they eat or any decisions around food, you know, together. Hmm. That's a really good question. And I didn't do follow-up interviews. I wish I had. I did 15 interviews on my own. And then I had 25 that I drew upon that had been previously collected. And hmm. Like there wasn't a lot of conversation, but like the negotiation seemed like they were kind of implicit. So people would say things like, I'm just saying they affected how I eat because they're there and they're the person that you spend the most time with. And if what they're eating looks good, you're thinking, oh, I should have some of that as well. And even if it comes at the expense of like you used to eat vegetables, but your partner didn't. So you cut back on vegetables kind of a thing. And I was just like, that's sad. Like, let's just all enjoy vegetables because vegetables are great. Vegetables, look, vegetables are great. <laughs> Even though I did see a TikTok the other day that said there is no such thing as a vegetable. And it really kind of left me shook for a minute because like broccoli's a flower, cucumbers are melons, tomatoes are fruit. I was very confused. And I was just kind of like, I don't understand what this means. <laughs> I mean, is this another narrative that we buy? Right. That we like so every every time they told me they were I was eating a vegetable, my parents lied. I mean, they definitely lied about carrots being good for your eyesight because I ate all my carrots and I'm blind as a bat. <laughs> uh, there's look, there's so many ideas we're challenging just in this one conversation. <laughs> I mean, the information about vegetables, I'm kind of like, wait a minute. Hold on. I know. As soon as we get off air, I am Googling. I am <laughs> the food pyramid is a scam. <laughs> I, we're, you know, we're going to have way more questions than answers today, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> All right, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sutta and I'm joined by Dr. Letitia Brown, an assistant professor of sociology and a member of the steering committee for the development of the food studies program at Virginia Tech. So if you're just joining us now, it should be obvious we are talking about food and we have really talked about a lot today, <laughs> um, thinking about social context and relationships and how they impact our experiences of food. And then also thinking about, you know, questioning what do we know about food? Um, is it true or not? Thinking about food narratives around what we should eat, when we should eat, how we should eat, and even are we eating vegetables or not? <laughs> 
These are all questions that we are exploring in today's conversation. Uh, now, Dr. Brown, what I wanted to ask you is where do you see this work going? So you've done a lot of different work on food, but what's kind of next in this vein of food research for you? I think what's really next for me is working my interest in food into my teaching. Mm -hmm. So being a part of the steering committee at Virginia Tech for the development of our food studies program has just been such a phenomenal experience. I was beyond excited to kind of like be tapped for this position. Like, oh, you see, you see that I, that I do stuff on food. That's, that's good. I'm glad, I'm glad someone sees it. And like kind of having the ability to like craft a course that focuses on like race and food. And so in my mind, I'm thinking about like eating the other and borders, like where does American food end and begin and just how do we explore it through the lens of race. And so thinking about the readings that I'm gonna do for this class and building on not just like food as something that exists in order to like satiate our bodies for nutrients, but definitely food within the context of our social cultural experiences. Mm -hmm. Like someone who grew up like multicultural, I cannot separate like food from my lived experiences. A lot of my most profound memories are tied to foods. Like I remember the first time there was a whole pig in my sink and I was like, what is going on here? I remember my grandma Thelma's homemade birthday cakes that would always be sent to me when I moved to Cincinnati. Like food has been such a huge part of like my cultural experience and upbringing that I'm really looking forward to kind of developing a sociological course on the subject of food, because I don't think that we as sociologists pay enough attention to food, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like we talk about it in passing, but it's just kind of like, but food is actually kind of important. Yes. Because we, yeah. I was just thinking, you know, important in so many ways, as even you're explaining, even in talking, right? So important to, mm -hmm. I'm sure everyone listening has that memory that is very much tied into food, right? So it might not be the whole pig in your sink, but it could be, you know, that special birthday dinner or that first time you maybe tasted, you know, a specific dish or just an aroma that reminds you, you know, of your grandmother or grandfather, you know, yeah. being in their homes, right? So we yeah. all have these very distinct memories around food or even for folks who are like, man, you know, my life in food has been pretty bland. That's still telling you something about food and your relationship to food um, beyond just, you know, eating um, to stay alive, <laughs> right? Um, and then even thinking still about you know, of course, we didn't d dive into all the ways that our food choices can be constrained, right, or very directed in certain ways. But even thinking, you know, about that, and I think there is more, you know, sociological research, you know, around food deserts and things like that. But as you are talking, there's multiple ways that food is impacting our lives. Right. And even just like thinking about food deserts in the abstract is so different from seeing a food desert 
in action. Mm -hmm. When I was a graduate student, I went to Jackson, Mississippi for a workshop that I was attending. And I had never in my life been to an area where I did not see a single grocery store between our trip to the airport and the university. I saw several liquor stores and convenience stores and I was like, oh, so this is a food desert. Like, I mean, I knew what a food desert was conceptually, but I had never really seen one until that moment. And I was horrified. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about the ways that these are not interpersonal self-inflicted scenarios, like the people that live in food deserts did not create that food desert. And, you know, like the processes of gentrification and destabilization of neighborhoods are just things that you can witness. Like in the time that I was in Austin, that city changed so much. And I was just like, oh, this is what happens. Like, and I guess it's because, you know, when you grow up, you pay more attention to things than you did maybe when you were younger. But even when I go home to Colorado, I see a multitude of differences than when I lived there as a child. And just thinking about how food is so central to our human experience. Like it's a part of our everyday, but it's also like celebration and connectivity. It is such a huge part of our existence that being able to understand the different dynamics that shape how, why, and what we eat is going to be an important area as long as there are people who eat food. <laughs> right. Like if we go the route of Wally and we're all just like drinking those shakes, like maybe we won't care as much, but so long as we're like eating food like people, I think people are going to care. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And I was thinking about, you know, your course that you're developing around race and food. And I think um, students will be really excited to take this course. And, you know, folks like me will be really excited to see, you know, what topics you decide to incorporate, because there are so many ways that you could approach, right, this bigger question of race and food. I mean, more recently, we've seen, I think, increasing maybe attention given to this idea of, you know, whose food, thinking about cuisines, and again, to your comment earlier about, you know, chefs and what food they have the right to cook. Um, and, and also, whose cooking do we feel like is um, five star or four star worthy versus whose, you know, isn't. Right. Right. And so questions around food um, and food authenticity uh, are also embedded in that. There are so many different directions and just thinking about, you know, because like this course is going to be focused on the U.S. context because I need something small for 15 weeks. If this was a year long class, we could talk about a lot. But I also kind of like want to destabilize some of the existing narratives, right? So of course we're gonna read about black vegans. We're gonna read the book by Stephanie Covington that I talked about, about eating disorders in black women. Mm -hmm. I have an entire section on just like women of color in general and eating attitudes within the context of health. And I mean, I'm still, I'm still pulling readings and thinking through assignments, but it's like, 
the most exciting part I think about my job is being able to create these classes that matter to me as a human and that inspire me and excite me such that I can bring that excitement to my students and hopefully get them excited. <laughs> yes. Well, I know for folks who are listening with us this morning, they're definitely excited because I'm excited. So what if you could recommend uh, maybe any readings or even documentaries or anything that maybe um, is connected to some of the big topics we've talked to around food? Um, What are some suggestions that you might have for folks who are maybe really for the first time questioning, you know, wait a minute, how are my relationships or even my faith practice? or even where I live, you know, impacting, you know, how, why, and what, you know, I'm eating. What suggestions or recommendations would you have for folks? There are so many, (laughs) but I would definitely recommend Sista Vegan, Black Female Vegan Speak on Food, Identity, Health, and Society by Patrice Jones. Mm -hmm. Um, I also would recommend Veganism in an Oppressive World, a Vegans of Color Community Project by Julia Feliz Burek. Mm -hmm. There are just so many books. Um, I would also, in like just thinking about what it is that you care about, A Mess of Greens by Elizabeth Ingerlhart talks about like, gendered food dynamics in the South, which is just fascinating because, you know, we don't often think about location Mm -hmm. and kind of like how we live as Americans in the society that's kind of like been transplanted, right? So the people that settled in Chicago and Detroit are from places like Alabama and Louisiana after the great migration. And so what food traditions kind of traveled with people. Mm. So I'm just really curious to kind of like dig into those stories and those conversations around food and race. And what I love about the minor is that there are going to be so so many different courses that talk about different aspects like environmental justice and native food structures, like in such a way that I know that I can't cover everything in race and food because I don't know everything about race and food, Mm -hmm. but I'm definitely going to be like recommending articles and readings from people that I know that are doing good work in food and race, like from Asian-American perspectives, from African-American perspectives, from Latinx-American perspectives, like as many different perspectives as I can find. And just kind of talking about how food is a central component of our experiences as humans and how we relate to one another via our food practices. Like things are changing, but, you know, people would go to school And they would have immigrant parents speaking like myself and we would bring food and people would be like, oh, that looks weird or oh, that smells weird. But now everybody wants to eat that food today. And I'm just like, you know what? You should have been nicer to me in second grade. (laughs) Because you might not remember, but I remember. And, you know, so it's just like we have to kind of think about how food shapes our 
lived experiences and our identities and just really have fun with exploring that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Letitia Brown, it has been such a pleasure to have you with us this morning talking about one <laughs> of my favorite topics. Uh, you've given me so much to think about. I can't wait to dive into some of those recommendations, uh, but thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Uh, so the only thing I love more than talking about food is of course eating food so I know I'm about to go grab some delicious food and I hope that you will too so Jonathan Saffron Fowler said food is not rational food is culture habit craving and identity and I think that really encapsulates so much of what Dr. Letitia Brown and I talked about this morning and I have have so much to think about now as I'm thinking about food and relationships and even those food negotiations, right? And how we're approaching, you know, what we eat, how and why. And for today's positive note, I want to remind you of this. Good food never fails in bringing people together. So I know we are all, you know, wanting to have more connections. And that is just so much a part of our humanness, right? Having connections to people and one really great way to foster those connections is through good food. And good food is also the gateway, not only to relationships, but someone else said food is the ultimate pacifier that you can forgive anyone after a scrumptious meal. I know some good food puts me in a good mood. So let's go out and have some good food today. There's so many great places here in Memphis or local to wherever you may be tuning in from. Y'all, this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Whether you're listening on WYXR 91.7 or listening through our app or online at WYXR.org, I hope you will join me again next Saturday morning.